such a high honor to reconnect with a friend of the program. Um, uh, I kind of came out of left field with him, but he was very um, deft dealing with all my questions or, you know, butchered questions about, uh, you know, life and myth and mystics and stories and ultimately the gravitation of humanity to oneself in order to heal uh, through psychedelics or microdosing. And he continues on today in a prolific way, publishing and inspiring people to lose their identity. Dr. James Fadiman, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, uh, it is a pleasure to come out of left field. I <laughs> recall vividly when I was uh, younger uh, and there were setting up for baseball, people said, well, let's put Fadiman in left field. He'll do the least harm there. <laughs> uh, little, little, he was not a liability out there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask you something. Um, can you talk about your personal and professional relationship with Willis Harmon? Sure. Uh, Willis Harmon, who was a uh, associate professor of electrical engineering at Stanford, when I arrived um, fresh from a couple of psilocybin experiences in Europe to begin my graduate work at Stanford. Now, I was not exactly um, excited by psychology, but my alternative career path at that point uh, had been uh, pointed out to me by my draft board. And uh, it seemed to me that it was a very patriotic of me not to become, not to go to Vietnam um, and probably get wounded and cost the VA an enormous amount of money for <laughs> right, right, right. So out of a sense of patriotic generosity, awesome. let alone cowardice, I uh, decided to go to Stanford. But I'd had these psychedelic experiences, which were what kind we would now call medium dose of psilocybin um, with uh, Dick Alpert, later Ramdas, uh, in Europe about six weeks earlier. So I was uh, very aware that that conventional psychology did not uh, wasn't very good at explaining what I was going through, and I ended up uh, walking, uh, looking at the catalog, finding psychology pretty much either as boring or I didn't know what they were talking about as I'd expected. Huh. But way in the back of the catalog was this little area called special courses, <laughs> which meant that. You could teach outside your discipline, and I'm pretty sure that Stanford didn't pay you for it, um, but there was something called the human potential, and it talked about what was the best and highest that people could aspire to, and it talked about Plato, and it talked about philosophy, but something, something felt like I needed to investigate it. So I made a call. Professor Harmon, can I an appointment? Interested in your class? Sure, come over to the electrical engineering building. I found his office and it looked exactly um, like a stage set for a associate professor of electrical engineering. It was it was it was nothing interesting in the office. There were a couple of pictures of clearly wife children. There were a couple of books on a bookshelf. There were some papers. And it was really sterile. And so we sat down and I said, I, I'm interested in taking your course. He said, well, it's actually full this quarter, but I give it every quarter. Maybe you could take it next quarter. And 
without premeditation and clearly from a, a, a different source of where the knowledge in the universe is, I said, well, I've had psilocybin three times. <laughs> oh, and, you know, yeah, go ahead, continue. Please. And this professor of electrical engineering looked at me, stood up, walked around his plain, large wooden desk and to the door where he closed it. And he sat down, not behind his desk, but next to me said, let's talk. <laughs> and it turned out he was working with a group uh, off campus called the International Foundation for uh, Advanced Study that was doing uh, government licensed psychedelic therapy uh, with high doses of LSD. Uh, and they did on their very small unpaid staff, there was no psychologist. So they said, would you be our psychologist? Now, given how little psychology I had, I thought they're pretty desperate, but it's clearly much more interesting than anything else. I want to be clear, though. He, when he said, let's talk, he said they're looking for, they need a psychologist. He knew they needed one. Well, he was, the the class, as it turned out, um, you started out, you know, where do we go for answers for what's the best in human beings? Right. And so you gradually went from science to psychology, to philosophy, to metaphysics, to religion, to spiritual experiences, to psychedelics. And Willis, very sensibly, couldn't talk at all at Stanford about what he was doing, but I could. <laughs> so I not only took his class, I became his teaching assistant. So you got, so even though at first he said it was full, you got into that class. Of course. Okay, yeah. got it, got it. And then yeah. at a certain point, he, I mean, I just also want you to touch on this as it relates, you were ambivalent about what the literature and the, what the academy was saying about psychology. No, I wasn't ambivalent at all. I thought it was. I don't know like, if that's the right word, but what, all, what wasn't sitting work. with you? What wasn't sitting with you well? Right. It wasn't, it didn't, let's say I knew enough to already see that it didn't know much. Uh, I did. Okay. There you just answer the question then. Okay. It's kind of like, you know, you go into a, a kind of a foot, a shoe store and you ask about um, the differential on your car. Right. They just don't know, but they might want to keep you there in case you want to buy a shoe. That's the way it felt. So anyway, Willis, right. after a few weeks of being in his class, he said, you know, I know you've had these experiences with, with Alpert. Would you like to have an experience with us? And I started, sure, that'd be great. Because at that point, the psilocybin method with Alpert and Leary and all was almost social. You kind of sat down, a number of people took it at once, and there was right. talking and, um, and kind of getting kind of excited about the visuals. Um, it wasn't all that profound, but it was, but it was still, you got that your mind was capable of a whole lot more than you ever knew. Anyway, I show up for my fun day with Willis only, um, it's, and, and my, there's a, there's a woman there that set up is actually uh, a beautifully apportioned living room. Um, that's where we all got how to do sessions in nice living room spaces from the <laughs> foundation set up. But that's a different story. That's yeah, I know. We'll get into that. Yeah, that's an Al Hubbard story. But then, then um, Willis gave me this some something which turned out to be, I think, like two hundred or two hundred fifty mics of LSD, and I sat back and I said to him and and this woman who was also a young professor, um, "What are you guys taking?" 
because I thought, you know, it's like, let's go out and have a drink, and you're the only one that has a drink. Right, exactly. So they looked at each other like, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, but they they either pretended to take something or maybe took a little amphetamine. And so I'm kind of being social, and I'm uh, shooting my mouth off, which is kind of my main my main thing of doing is still oh, doing yeah. it. Fantastic. Prolifically. It's amazing. And, yeah. and at some point, you know, I just don't want to talk to them. I And they say, would you like to lie down? I said, yeah, I'd like to lie down. They said, would you like to have um, eye shades? Said, yeah, I'd like to have eye shades. Do you mind if we put headphones on you and you listen to music? No, I'll have a listen to music. I have, you know, I'm starting to, in my world, I'm starting to lose it in my later understanding as I'm starting to take off. Right. <laughs> And a couple of hours later, when I sit up, the my internal world had been totally uh, reorganized. And so Willis and I worked together uh, for a number of years, uh, including, uh, and we'll probably talk about it, the, the, the big creativity experiment that's still talked about. Um, and we remained friends for quite a while. I ended up running something called Noetic Sciences. And... At one point, the board, one of the board members said, you know, if Willis Harmon were running Noetic Sciences, I would give a lot more money than I'm giving with you running it. And you said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get him to do that. Exactly. Exactly. I, I saw this profound, I, I just, I have to say, this is what he said. I, I, I it literally, uh, I was stunned. I was stoned out of, I mean, not literally stoned. I just, it stoned me because when I, I got a chance to listen to him, do this interview with a, an affable Italian guy. And I just want you to riff on this in your own way. I mean, sure. You can go as deep as you want. It just, and obviously we've talked a lot about the psychedelic experience. I came of age with, with psychedelics when it was totally social and totally involved normally around music. So, right. you know, it was a different vibe. Uh, and he's talking about, this is what he said. He goes, what are, so this is my question for you. Cause this is, what are the metaphysical assumptions that lie under Western science? And why is it a minority opinion? It, 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 to me, it's so obvious that consciousness is part of it, but it's so unquantifiable that it doesn't fit into Western science. Right. What are the metaphysical assumptions that lie underneath Western science? Uh, probably that individuals are separate. The time only goes in one direction. Right. Um, but that separation is really the fundamental. That consciousness is a uh, is is limited to the to the physical organism in which it arises, and that human beings. This isn't metaphysical. This is a straight Old Testament biblical. Right. That human beings are in some way superior to all other species. And that superiority is almost entirely because of what we call consciousness. So, so Willis, what Willis did, he became really a philosopher of science, uh, because these again were years in which people like me, who were fringier and fringier, could talk about psychedelics, but he couldn't. And so, but as the head of the um, Institute of Noetic Sciences founded by an astronaut who looked out of the window as he was going to the moon and had a transformative experience, he could talk about transformative experiences and universal experiences and a lot of things without necessarily um, talking about the tool that many of us were using. 
So Willis became really a, a prominent philosopher of science. And of course, like any good observer, could see where the holes were. The, uh, go a little bit deeper with noetic. Uh, you know, there's stuff called nada yoga, sound yoga. I mean, I'm, I very much am gravitating towards that, especially sure. the communal experience. Uh, and why, so the, the, the general assumption is that Consciousness didn't exist until after the human beings came along, when in fact it was there the whole time. That that's right. essentially, essentially, and we're talking about total interconnectivity as well. We're all right. connected. Well, there's a there's an old theory that Penrose had, I guess, about forty years ago, that um, consciousness is a wave, like a quantum wave, and as it goes through everything. It jiggles things. And when it goes into a human brain, it jiggles things. And that jiggling is what we call consciousness. Now, I don't know that Willis was that was up that far, and I'm not. Um, but we do know jiggling. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but we do know that there's some one this is my favorite is there's some one-celled animals. There's a particular um slug. Yes, uh, that is basically one cell, and it can solve a simple maze, which is literally uh, you put oatmeal at one end of a maze. It likes oatmeal, and then it's a it's not a really hard maze, but it's a maze, and it tests out things, and it comes to learn what's the quickest way to get through the maze to get to the oatmeal. Now, remember, this is a a, a being with no nervous system, no stomach, no brain. Um, no, uh, no sexual differentiation. Um, now, how does it do that as a one-celled animal? Well, it links up with other, uh, basically becomes a very big one-celled animal um, by kind of merging with, with other ones of its sort. And the first uh, people who researched this, and I love it, uh, were in Japan. And uh, it was two guys, it was a Japanese and a, and a Westerner. And uh, the Japanese started to write a paper about the intelligence of one-celled beings. Oh. And the Westerner couldn't handle that because he knew that couldn't be. Now, the difference is, if you look at Japanese mythology, um, people are turning into animals all the time. The, 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 the line between animal and human is very, very... Uh, weak and particularly in the mythology and fairy tales it's not it's much stronger in in you know in the west so for him to say that something not person not person had intelligence was not a big leap uh, for the westerner it was and so i continue to enjoy the fact that 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 one-celled animal um had not only um memory okay i mean just finding your way through a maze you would do that you know, just by kicking at the walls long enough and finding where the holes were. But to do it again, you have to have memory and you do it faster. Um, where is memory stored? And the answer is, don't ask that to neuroscientists and mention this study because they get very ag agitated. <laughs> um, I, okay, so, I mean, this is the most, I I just feel like it's a, it's sort of my obligation to sort of talk to you about this <clears throat> noetic science an astronaut saw right. something uh beyond explanation or was inspired yeah. enough 
to start what what year did they actually would you say that it sort of not that it gave gravitas to it but was there anything that predated the that institute well the word noetic came from a description of william james william james was talking about consciousness and he said it's noetic which means you can't describe it um if you think about it it's not a great name for an institute we're the we can't tell you what it's about (laughs) no but i mean in some ways it's like beyond description but yeah i get it totally yeah and and the astronaut uh mitchell uh richard i forget his uh, ed mitchell um started the institute because the early astronauts were instant uh pop stars and each one of them kind of ended up you know doing little projects that had nothing to do with the space program and ed mitchell had been interested in parapsychology one of the things he did when he was in outer space is he did a telepathy experiment to see if telepathy would work over 250,000 miles instead of you know the next room uh, the answer was yeah so so noetic sciences was willing to look at a whole lot of very interesting things um and I, I ended up consulting to them and against my better judgment became the director. And as I say, it wasn't doing very well economically. It did much right. better once Willis, who was really, you know, uh, very distinguished and very gentle and very uh, comfortable. He didn't have to show you he was smart. Uh, a lot of professors need to. I do. I, you, you're, I, this video, I fell in love with the man. And then I heard <laughs> you talking about this. Uh, so I just want to be clear, though. The, the, when you went to his office, you got into his class. Yep. And then he this this study that this program that he had was not the Noetic Science Institute. This no, was no. Yeah. No, no. Right. This was the Institute of um, uh, the International Foundation for Advanced Study was started by uh, an early employee of Ampex or Corporation uh, who invented the wire tape recorder. That's before the tape tape recorder. Absolutely. Uh, the oh, wire recorder. And and um, he, you know, as, as early members of good companies are, he had enough money to retire early. And he was very interested in these things for another set of complicated stories. And the government at that point said, you know, if you want to do research in this area, you know, let us know. Um, And the way you got psychedelics in those days is you wrote Sandoz and you said, hi, I'm a researcher and I'd like some LSD. And you can tell by my stationery, I'm a very legitimate researcher. Now, I say it in that way because a little later on, uh, Andy Weil, who later became beautiful and famous and important and and a beautiful being. He was an undergraduate and um, he wanted to experiment with psychedelics and um, Alpert and company um, didn't do that with him. So he, he wrote Sandoz and asked for some stuff and got it. And I looked at that and I thought, could they really have been that kind of easy about just dropping the stuff in the mail? And I read the the little um, kind of insert that you'd get when you'd get your LSD. You'd get a box and it would have little glass ampules and each little ampule, ampule is a little teeny bottle with a sealed, a glass sealed top. And it was 25 mics in, a, in an ampule. And it would say, dear Mr. Researcher, here is a, here is a bunch of LSD for you. 
then literally it would say, please let us know what you do with it. Wow. The feedback. Because Sandoz said, this stuff is the most powerful substance for human consciousness that we've ever imagined could exist. We're trying to figure out some way to make money off it. And it, we can't figure out what it's good for. So I was going to say, so there was no regulation of it. Well, there was no regulation because yeah. nobody knew what it was good for. And originally, exactly. Exactly. originally, people thought, because if you take it in a bad enough set and setting, you have what we now call as a bad trip. Where you go south. Yeah. Early on, bad trips were what was available because that's the way people thought. You know, you take a drug, you're in a laboratory, it's got bright lights, it's got noise, um, and they leave you alone, and they measure your blood a few times, they make you pee a few times. People went nuts. So they decided it mimicked psychotic episodes. Now, there's not a big market for something that gives you a psychotic episode, but Sandoz, I think, reasonably cleverly said, it's a great training tool for psychiatrists because you can then understand better where a psychotic or a schizophrenic is coming from. And, and so that was its original notion. It was a psychotomimetic. It mimicked psychosis. And then some other people, including Stan Groff, had a very different set of experiences um, and the rest is a very complicated and no, totally I, this is so I this is really what it comes down to because I've dedicated this interview to Willis Harmon is yeah. why what did you teach him about not that he was a skeptic, but I don't see him he was not do dosing, was he? Uh, he never talked about it. Okay, but he, he wasn't he had, he, enough, he had enough experiences. Yeah, yeah. No, there was a there was a um, I was I was the youngest member of this little team. Right. One of the members of the team that showed up now and then was Al Hubbard, who also brought the psychedelics. There was an advanced, you know, I, I told you, you know, I got a couch and a music and headphones. Sure. The advanced course was done by going to Death Valley with with Hubbard and taking psychedelics and being exposed to some of the um, some vistas and some places in Death Valley, uh, which we would probably call power centers, whatever that means. And that was um, that was to let you know that there was a whole nother level after transcendence. And that okay. it dealt with uh, looking well, what at is the power energy, what is you know, kind of looked at the energy beings who also are part of us, kind of the other end of the single celled mechanism. Because there's, again, right. when you look at consciousness, there's no rule of thumb that says it has to fit into an organism. It what could... was your, what, the Death Valley, how was the Death Valley thing, uh, experience pivotal for you beyond transcendence? That's, well, I, I had one and it wasn't pivotal. It was, I, I don't recall getting much benefit from it. It was kind of fascinating. And you were, you know, Hubbard was your guide. Um, my trend, no, my pivotal experience was that time on the couch because that pivotal experience shifted 
the my belief in what my identity was so that I now would say, as I did, you know, like the next morning and say it now, I don't know, 60, 60 years later, um, Jim Fadiman is a subset of my total identity. And that's a shift which once made, um, you can never put that back in the bottle. So it turned out whatever I was supposed to get from Death Valley, um, I didn't. Right. Hubbard, Al Hubbard, what, he, he was, did he make his own acid? No, he got it from Sandoz. He got it from Sandoz, but he was, at the end of the day, you were brought on the team, and were, would you say that you would, did not, the textbooks, the stuff in that psychology, so the limiting part of it, it was sort of, you already knew what it was. What did you bring to that team? <laughs> what was what was your specialty? I mean, you were the youngest cat, but at the same well, time, the, the youngest wasn't a specialty. It was just kind of came with a job. But yeah, I with, always think of a team. What as I well, was yeah. given, what I yeah. was given, is they were working on a first paper because they had they were they were running research on giving people um, LSD in a kind of clinical setting, and they had results. And they wanted to, uh, you know, kind of playing, not playing the game, but that was important because we were coming out of this, the kind of psychopathic view of psychedelics right. into the beneficent view. And so there was a paper and there had been a rough draft and I was given that to, to kind of psychologize it up. And I read it over and it had a lot of interesting things. This was now before I had my couch experience, okay? Before? Yeah, so I'd just okay. come from Europe with my psilocybin experiences with my buddies. And so I very carefully took out of the paper the descriptions of mystical states. And Willis looked at it and said, why'd you take those out? He said, because nobody's going to buy that. And so we worked on the paper and Willis carefully took all the things, literally, um, literally cut and pasted. Uh, right. He took all the little pieces of paper and he squirreled them away. And then as the paper was ready to be submitted, he said, um, I've added a little appendix and I, and the appendix had all the mystical things put back in. And in my ignorance and my position as psychologist, I said that's just not going to work. He said, "Well, I'm only going to <laughs> I'm only going to send the appendix to friends." And I thought, you know, I don't know what's going on exactly. He wants to do that. It's fine. And one of the friends was the editor of the journal, who published the paper with the appendix about mystical oh experience. <laughs> and within a few months, of course, I was so glad we had that in there because that was the important part of the entire psychedelic Absolutely. experience. You were so, in, yeah, go ahead. So you have to go back to an era where, where we really didn't know much and we didn't know much about the spiritual traditions and psychology didn't know nothing. Um, and, and there really wasn't, to find a journal that would be interested in this was not easy. And so this paper really didn't make much of a difference at the time, um, because, of course, a year or two later, the government said, regardless of what what you're doing, you're stopping as of as of today. And that's a different story. And that was, again, um, that was in the middle of the creativity experiment, 
when the government said all LSD research in the United States is as of this date canceled. So we're in that we're in the before that. And of course, oh. as soon as something becomes illegal, a huge new market opens up because criminals are very clear that if people want something and it's not legal, you can sell it to them for much more. Um, so much you just threw a lot. So I, I'm I'm going back last night and, and and transcribing this incredible story about the International Foundation for Advanced Study, the last study you did, which was the creativity study with right. the AT and T guys, Foster's Freeze, uh, Bay Area nursing schools. No, so, no, 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 no. We're confusing my career and my psychedelic career. No, Psych I want, okay, you know, the, psychedelic, no, the creativity study was hard scientists, senior scientists in Hewlett Packard, Varian, Lockheed, um, the whatever the big companies of the day were, because Willis in electrical engineering and with the Stanford graduates was part of the technical pre-Silicon Valley um, Stanford world. So the the creativity study was giving saying to these people, we're doing this study on creativity and we would like you to come in with a problem that you are not able to solve that has been bothering you for at least three months. 100 micrograms LSD. So so this was designed so because uh, the problem and most of your 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 uh, people who listen to you know this very well yes. when you take a psychedelic and you're you're taking a reasonable dose the last thing in the world that interests you is what you're doing for your living <laughs> but willis worked it out and we worked it out together that if you can get people who are sufficiently motivated to solve the problem they will be willing to kind of put their consciousness down through that tunnel and keep it there long enough. And it was a real experiment. We really didn't know. I personally thought it would never work because by then I'd had my couch experience and I knew that my, my scientific interests were of no, no use to the universe. <laughs> but, but we set it up. We had four scientists, so they kind of reinforced each other. They were genuinely obsessed with their problem. They had no psychedelic experience. And we told them that they would be able to, to kind of observe themselves in their own mind for the morning with the headphones and, and eye masks. But in the afternoon, they would get the opportunity to work on their problems. Wow. And so when we got them up from their morning, we basically turned them almost immediately. We gave them a few psychological tests of which for creativity and they all did lots better and nobody ever cared. But when they got to their problems, they dug in. And what happened, the only change we made in the instructions is after two groups, we said you had to come in with at least two problems because a couple of people looked at their insolvable problem and said, oh yeah, I see how to do it. Uh -huh. Get a few notes, and now they have a couple of hours. Unbelievable! In a so you're uh, okay. So and all four of those cats, those scientists, no yeah. Ellis. How did you sort of co convince them that this was 
I mean, for some people, this is like the biggest sin in the world. Is if they, I mean, none of them were anti-drug. How did you no, get them to actually they, ingest? They weren't. Remember, they weren't anti-drug and they weren't pro-drug. They didn't. They just. They were. They wanted to solve these problems. They were indifferent to it. To but anybody. what we said is, we're setting up a study, and it'll and it, it may be the most creative day yeah. of your life. <laughs> okay, you know, it's again, you can bring a horse to water, right? But you can also kind of push his head down. <laughs> so we oh. set it up so that that's what they came for. That's what they wanted, and the feeling of solving a very difficult problem particularly one that has bothered you for a while is a very very high feeling it's a wonderful feeling of of intellectual um, kind of orgasm um, and you immediately as soon as you've seen a solution um, the world opens up in a whole a whole another way i mean let me give you the one that the one yeah. example that i really still don't quite believe occurred and i was there somebody is doing a thought experiment now einstein did a lot of thought experiments about what happens when you accelerate things to the speed of light and so forth so it's understood in science you can kind of imagine a problem well he was designing um a circuit this became semiconductors basically this early semiconductor research right um and he was designing an electric circuit now, when you design an electric circuit, it has capacitors, it has resistors, it has a lot of stuff, and then the little electricity runs back and forth and up and down, and, and something happens to the end. Well, he would imagine, and he's setting up a circuit board, and it has these little objects on it that do things, and he would imagine sending an electric current into that device. And then he would observe the electric current until it failed. And then he would see where in his imagined setup he had observed a failure. Mm. Remember, he couldn't guess because if he had guessed, he would have designed it differently. Then he would make up another imaginary circuit, correcting that particular issue, and then run it again until he found one that worked from the beginning to the end. Now, I find that, I, as I say, I find that wonderfully amazing. And it suggests that, that well, what we had, what we knew from these guys, because these were, again, people who, who were working on these problems, who were employed by major companies. Um, a number of them became, you know, vice presidents of various companies. These were wow. hotshots. So what our belief was that, if you knew enough to work on the kind of problems you were being paid for, that you had all the pieces of the answer somewhere, but you didn't know how to put them together. And so this particular one that I'm sharing with you um, is just an extraordinary way of testing it out. We had someone else, for example, who did thought experiments um, with, I think it was a positron. That's a positive electron. And there were theories about them. And he, he would run thought experiments with all the different theories. Now, out of that, he did a, a published paper with a new theory of the positron. So that was, and we also had at the other end, uh, we had someone who was several architects who basically had failed with a client. 
right. that the client didn't like any of their ideas. And these were these were really top guys. And so the one that I remember was a small, um, like a small shopping center, a little mall in Santa Cruz. And there was a site. And so the dimensions were known and kind of a lot of the variables were, but all the ideas this guy came with, the, the owner of the, the site didn't like. So he spent the morning, he said, kind of walking through all the, the most amazing buildings of history, some of which still were up and some weren't. He was kind of reviewing architectural history. And when he turned his attention to the problem and he brought with him great big pieces of, of paper, drafting paper, so he could you know, do some sketching if he felt like it, he saw the building. He didn't see a misty version of it. He didn't see a kind of vague outline. He saw the building. And he said, I saw the building and I went and counted the parking places. <laughs> I could look under a beam and I could see the size of the bolts used to attach that beam. And so he made a bunch of sketches and then the client liked it. And about six weeks later, he settled down to do, you know, the architectural drawings, which is, you know, exact and technical. And he did them over a period of hours and hours. And then he said, Oh, yeah, I didn't look at my sketches. And I said, how could you do that without looking at your sketches? He says, I knew the building. So that's what that's an area which is quite extraordinary and is still not really well understood in the scientific world. In the technical world, it's very well known. And there's just lots and lots of companies started in a similar way with breakthrough ideas. Uh, and there's just a wonderful quote uh, from Tim Ferriss, who said, I don't know a single billionaire in Silicon Valley that hasn't used a lot of LSD. Right. I want to just be very clear. <clears throat> this cat took, got, took, uh, dosed. Yep. The building came to him, the, the yep. entire, uh, and then he's doing the, the deeper dive into the architectural des designing of it, and it's still there. I mean, yep. he, he didn't have to look at his sketches at all. Right. Well, when he started, imagine, I mean, I'm sitting now in a room right. in Santa Cruz. It's got a placement of windows. It's got, you know, where the electric plugs are. It's got lighting. Um, it's got doors. If I, if I were given, if I, if I, we're actually doing an architectural drawing of it. I wouldn't have to be sitting here to do that. I really know this room very well. That was the feeling. So what, at this point, what is science, even though the, not much is understood or explainable, right. what is on what is sort of to me, also, I want to be clear with the four guys that you brought in and two of them or however many of them were like, oh, I solved this problem. Right. Uh, you then had follow up uh, studies with cats, but they had to bring two problems. Is that right? Say that again. You said that. So the first time. No, just the last few words. Yeah. So uh, when you had follow up. Um, uh, yeah. Studies with and you told them to bring two problems, not one. Yeah, well, that was so that if they solved the first problem, they wouldn't 
spin their wheels during the psychedelic session. I would just be, I'm fascinated with that first maiden voyage, the two cats who solved it right off the bat. Like that would have been orgasmic. I mean, I know that's not, that would have, they would have, I mean, if I was tripping really hard, that would have been euphoric. Or well, something. It, it was euphoric. It is euphoric. Yeah. Uh, and and creativity, when you solve a creative problem, you know, what spice to add to the pumpkin muffin or, right, right. or, or you know, a breakthrough that wins you the Nobel Prize, it's the same rush. There's something about creation, which in a sense comes out of nothing, that is exciting pretty much you know, uh, it's hard to think of anything more exciting. I mean, I've I've, I've written a, a novel, and when you write a novel, particularly if you're not a writer and you don't plot in advance, you think, I wonder how my characters are going to manage with the situation I just set up. Hmm. And then I think, oh, how about such and such? Right. It's good or not, whether it works or not, is that, that is very real. You say, oh, I can see to the top of the next hill. Um, very exciting. So you're you're a hundred percent right. I just in my in my speed reading, you uh, who was the cat? What was the, the who was the what was the problem that the professor had from San Francisco State, who ultimately took you in to be he was part of the Snowden, Sullivan, and Goodwin. You became yeah, a consultant, yeah. and so the second part of that, what was okay. the problem he was dealing with? Well, the, the, uh, again, we're conf we're we're covering two pieces at once. Right. We mo we moved to San Francisco State and set up the um, Institute for Psychedelic Research at San Francisco State uh, because somebody gave, I guess, Willis Harmon some money. Now we thought we would set up something at Stanford because. We'd never had any, you know, when, when universities are very clear, if you bring in money, that is a positive part of your job. So Willis went to the appropriate people at Stanford and said, I've been offered such and such money to set up some research. And they said, we don't want you to do it here. This was an extraordinary moment in the kind of academic freedom world. What year? What year is this? Um, 57, 58, wow. maybe. Okay. Um, so for Stanford to turn down money was just shocking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we went to, so we had a, a person in our group who joined, who was a real, a real psychologist named Robert Mogar, who's an associate professor at San Francisco State. And he said, well, we have a kind of researchy, you know, part of the university too. Why don't I see if they'll take the money so that we can set up a little institute? And he went to the San Francisco State people and he started to explain what it was. And they said, you don't have to tell us. He said, we're an educational institution. If you want to study something and you have a grant to do so, that's all we need to know. 1957. So this was a difference between, at that point, Stanford and San Francisco State. Now, Stanford understood that Larry and Alpert, by this time, had made national news. So Stanford, I believe, this is total speculation, thought, we don't really want to become 
And this is a, a term which to become the the kind of Harvard of the West. Now I use that term because Stanford loved to think of itself as the equivalent of Harvard on the West Coast. Right. But in this case, they saw what had happened at Harvard <laughs> with psychedelic money, right. and they thought the hell with it. So, right, they didn't want to get tethered to that. Right. Yeah. So you so. so so you so San Francisco State State gives you their blessing, yeah. To begin this like, and then you meet a professor there. Well, we start with with Robert Mogar was our professor, and he had been oh. working with us. Um, he'd been working with us like a real psychologist. I mean, for instance, we did a study. One of the questions was, uh, what happens to your your mind and ideas and so forth, your mental structure after you've had a serious psychedelic? No, nobody knew. And there's a there's a test called the um, I think the MMPI Minnesota Multiphasic something or other, and it has about 200 questions, and it's what's called a stable test, which is it is how you are, right. which is things you get divorced, you have the same same results, um, you get a new career, you have the same results. It's about your mental structure. So we thought that's a great test to see where the changes are because it's already said there won't be any. And so Mogar did the research on that. And what we found is that people's personality not only went through very big structural changes, but didn't settle down to a new stable structure for eight or nine months. So eight that's the nine months. Thing. Yeah. So that, that was from one well uh, curated high dose i, and, I guess the, the the yeah the i was you know so much of this uh, this 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 what caught my attention was actually like interpersonal uh you know cats that are engineers semiconductors that's all very you know sort of brute science but like with the nursing people can you talk about the effects of of like the ability to bring people together is that possible with psychedelics to get people more up was that was that your goal when once no. you got i'm sorry to jump ahead but it's like yeah, no we our goal was individuals now i said we had four people at once right but they didn't talk to each other four people at once a reason two reasons one is far cheaper and since we weren't being paid anyway that felt good right. um but also we were asking people to work on their own. And after like at four or five in the afternoon, they would get together and chat about what they'd done. And we were interested. And, and of course they could talk, they felt more comfortable talking both with other scientists and other people who just had this experience. So it was a kind of sensible design. Um, the nursing schools and all that, that's another part of my career where I become a consultant and I don't do anything remotely related to psychedelics for for quite a while because I, I have a family, I'm earning a living, and I happen to have as a consult what I consulted to Bay Area nursing schools and administered their um, they gave an exam before they admitted people. And so I had a graduate student who went from nursing school to nursing schools every Saturday, giving the admissions exams. Uh, scoring them, writing comments, and then I would present literally his work as our work to the faculty who would accept or not accept 
the nurse based on whatever else they were using, plus this exam. So it was very much a consulting job. I also consulted to Foster's Freeze. They didn't have the same problem. Their question, I loved, we're actually working for Foster's Freeze because their question was, um, Foster's Freeze was a little uh, soft ice cream chain with maybe 500 units. Yeah, there's still one on I-10 on the way to California from Tucson. Yeah, well, and, well, the one in Palo Alto went away and I was very sad. <laughs> But what their question was, and it's a wonderful business question, is yeah. each one of these franchises is run by an individual and a group or whatever. Some of them are very successful. Some of them are not successful. What's the difference? What makes the difference between success and not success? It's a great question. And someone who had my consulting job before I did said, well, we'll give them a, we'll take 10 of your most successful people. And we'll take 10 of your least successful people and we'll give them a whole bunch of tests and we'll ask them a whole bunch of questions and we'll see what the, where, where there are any differences. You know, it could be that people who are overweight do better selling ice cream. We didn't know. But it's a very clean, straightforward use of psychology with common sense. And so one of the things that when I came in, the analysis was still going on. And I remember vividly that one of the variables, there were two variables that I remember that predicted success in running a soft ice cream franchise. One was being a military veteran. The other was having family who worked at the place, that it was a family event, not a job of a single person. And, you know, I can now come up with explanations of why that was so and so forth, but that was the kind of, you know, consulting had a, had the, I had I had I was the problem solver, um, but I wasn't taking psychedelics, and and my clients weren't taking psychedelics either. I'm really glad we clarified that. I, I um, you went to later on, and this is just you know everyone has an ego, but right. You go to Brandeis, the students flock to you. Uh, yep. you didn't publish anything they wanted they said you know if you don't publish you're like i'm not interested in that um and they still offered you a, a long-term deal but well, but, but, but no, the, the question is the, yeah. the, the the question is yep students loved you uh willis Harmon is a lovable guy because he has profound knowledge and is completely humble like you were talking about earlier right i wanted you to just talk to other other professors academics or just researchers enthusiasts the qualities of bringing of being immersed in curiosity and knowledge but not turning people off because you just cannot stop listening to yourself bloviate these yeah. are this very important stuff i mean these these kids at the school and brandeis they offered you a long-term deal because the kids loved you and that obviously meant bringing more more money into the school right well um the psychology department hired me on the advice of Abraham Maslow, another famous psychologist. Maslow was teaching at Brandeis and had a year off. Someone gave him a, a Ford Foundation, gave him a grant. So he he and I had known each other very slightly. I was, um, I had just had, my teaching experience was teaching psychology one once at a different place. And he said, would you like to take my position for a year? Now he's a full professor. And I said, sure. 
He's, I said, but they'll never. How did, how did you originally connect with him, by the way? How did okay. you connect? Yeah. Well, um, we met in the baths at Esalen, but I assure you nothing happened. <laughs> okay, that's right. You met him at Esalen. That's right. Go ahead. Um, so I never know whether <laughs> there was any homoeroticism in it, but it didn't seem to be. Um, I was also interested in what he was interested in. And so he said, you know, um, come and do this. And I thought, I don't want to go to Brandeis. He said, I'd like you to come to Brandeis. I said, they'll never let me teach what I'd like. Because the way the teaching game works is you teach something that needs to be taught. And then each professor gets to teach something they'd like to teach. And so I decided I'd like to teach uh, the similar course to what Willis Harmon taught. Because I loved all the interesting readings that were so out far, you know, away from psychology, and it was it, it was it was interesting stuff. And he said, "Well, why don't you write the chairman of the department and tell them exactly what you want?" And I thought, "Okay, that's fair." So I did that, and I got a letter from the chairman that said, "We'd be very happy to have you filling in for Dr. Maslow for the year such and such." Later on, I learned that really they'd looked at what I wrote at the faculty meeting, and they said we don't want this at all right and maslow said he was the senior member of the department the only one was famous he said i want him in my position for the year you write him back and say it's fine okay? he said he said it's my year off it's my right. choice right someone's fine and so i arrived and i was given psychology one because nobody else particularly likes to do that <laughs> And I had another another basic course, I think, called Motivation. And I had a little special course. Um, and my courses were popular because um, I'm a very good talker. I yeah. still have some of that, which I hope will come out in this program. Oh, come but on, I, you're killing it. Oh, wait, what was the special course? The special course was pretty much along the lines of uh, the, the, the Willis Harmon best you know what's the best one can you be how good are human beings what's the most we can aspire to i got it i got it the one you and found in fact, in the back had, of the a lot of a lot of willis's readings i just turned into mimeographs and gave to my students right so uh so the psychology department was not very good and it was not very popular my courses were full and at the mid mid-range it's kind of middle of the year i meet with a department chair and he says, you know, I hope you're having a good experience. And uh, uh, me too. I'm having a very nice experience. He says, you know, if you would like to stay here, you'll need to do research and publish. And I said, I understand, sir. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. And then at the end of the year, he said, you know, uh, we'd like to offer you a three-year regular position within the tenure track. And I said, well, wait a moment. We had an agreement. And I really said this. We agreed that if I didn't publish and didn't do research, that you wouldn't keep me. I have kept my part of the bargain. And I left. Um, so, I mean, so the, in I just going back to this idea of uh, even just this idea of of bringing people towards you as opposed to away from you. I mean, you're a great talker, but yep. there's also something about, I don't know, like this guy wasn't even being a jerk to 
to Willis in the interview at all. He was he was from Europe and he was trying to ask questions about consciousness. Well, and I think, Will, and, I, and that's all I want to say is that the the, the okay. idea of these of these these cats that came in from from high power positions and they solve problems based off a of dose that was all based on levels of consciousness which right, again right. doesn't factor into western science you know and it's just yeah it, it, and it, particularly it didn't then we're you know we were much more materialist then than right we you think that you that, or just has the research gotten much i mean or we just evolved in some way well one of the reasons we've evolved a bit is since LSD was illegal, 40 million Americans have taken LSD. That's a lot of heads to open. <laughs> Breaking so open that, the skull. So that, so that when the when psychedelic research resumed, one of the things that was fascinating is there was like no backlash at all. There were no complaints. There was not, um, you know, the right wing Christians didn't say, you know, this is demonic. Um, the behaviorists didn't say, you know, consciousness doesn't exist. Um, because I think so many people who were now in the intelligentsia said, oh, yeah, psychedelics, I did that my my junior year. And I remember, yeah, I remember I was running down the streets of my college town at three in the morning naked. And I was yelling, what are you all doing hiding in your clothes? <laughs> what is the purpose of all this? Right. And that, and that yeah. now person is now the associate dean of a law school. <laughs> right, right. So, so the, the return of psychedelics has been very easy because um, we weren't really, a, people were not as frightened and not as confused and the government... Um, and the and the trust in the government had diminished considerably. How have you sped up the, if at all, um, the the I don't want to say the hip hipness of psychology, but being that you have, it's been part of your the way you sung sang for your supper over the years. Right. When you first started, you were just like, all right, I already know this. This is nothing. It has has psychology come a long way? In, in the last, half, I don't know, half century. Uh, psychology has become less respected, less uh, popular as a major. Um, it was first kind of, it used to be the most popular major, then it was eclipsed by economics, and now it's eclipsed by computer science. One of the, one of the things that someone pointed out to me is when, when are psychologists called in to help? Okay. Now they're called in to help usually after a disaster to help individuals feel better. You know, there's been a tragedy in a such and such a school or restaurant. Mass shooting, right? Absolutely. Yep. You know, and then there's but there's mental health workers are helping the survivors. Now, when there's something like the Ukraine war, psychologists are not called to the White House. To determine how the best way to ecology in, in my my way of understanding it um, is not as in, is not as um, didn't didn't live up to its promise because it it constricted its area of expertise. And I had a moment some years ago. I 
I have now another graduate school entirely that I'm working at called the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm with these graduate students and I'm you know, nice people. And then one of them talks about his dissertation. And I said, what's your dissertation on? And he said, the visual system of ferrets. Now, ferrets are like little foxes. Sure. And I looked at him as if to say, what does this have to do in any way, shape, or form with psychology? And I didn't say that because it's his dissertation and he's in a psychology department and someone has approved of it and so forth. But it felt like psychology's desire to look like a real science had been self-limiting. That is profound. You're, so you're telling me that psychology hemmed itself in, in to the point where you think that there could be effective measures for psychologists in in on the in, in Ukraine and war zones. Well, if psychology were interested in consciousness, and again, my that's little that's the problem. That's the problem, right? Yeah. yeah. And and the and the you know, when I said it, I had a school called the 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 California Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. What that was saying is transpersonal psychology must be a, by definition, a subdivision or an, you know part of psychology. And psychology said, no, you're not. Hmm. And we said, but we're studying consciousness and we're studying um, saints and geniuses. And they said, well, we're studying schizophrenics and neurotics. And I said, we're on the same continuum at least, and they said, no, because your end of the continuum doesn't exist. That's, uh, what. I, let me give you a, a different- so, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm floored right now. I mean, that's, that's, well, that's, let that's, me give that's, you a different field because remember, right. psychology has always tried to be what I would call a real science. And if you go back a little bit, uh, let's go back just to 1660, the Royal Society of London, which yes. is the first scientific organization its motto is question authority. Okay, it's better in Latin, but it's question authority, meaning don't accept something only on authority. It has to be observable, observed, and hopefully observed by more than one person. That's right. And they said there are two kinds of observations. One is, is kind of primary, which is matter. You know, how much does gold weigh? Uh, what happens if you drop gold into water or into maple syrup or into liquid lead? You know, it, it'll sink at a different rate or so forth. That's all measurable and everyone can agree with the measurements. They then said, well, there's also secondary phenomena, which is the experience people have about events, inner, inner events, and those are those are not measurable but they are discoverable, they are observable, and people can compare observations and come to generalizations. So that's the kind of science world. Now, psychology very quickly learned that the secondary stuff wasn't as respected because it was subjective and individual and so forth. And so they tried to do more and more measurement. So what's one of the great uh, breakthroughs of psychology is called the IQ test. Except we now know 
that the IQ test has a built-in bias, which is white kids, for right. example. Right. Okay? But for decades, that never occurred to anybody because wow. it measured, you know, you got 47 right out of 58 or you got 40 right out of 58 and that was different. And it was a measurement and it had a number. And so that got that got more respect. And at one point, our little school of transpersonal psychology went to the American Psychological Association and said, we would like to be certified for our clinical program. We were turning out clinicians. They were getting hired. They were ending up working in government, uh, but they weren't approved of by the American Psychological Association. And the Psychological Association wrote back, and this took like two years and a yeah. lot of money and a lot of time, uh, and with me digging my heels in, like they will never accept us because they don't like us. Um, and they came back, and in essence, and, and you're reading along this 10-page document, and then there's a couple of paragraphs that just, you just know by the way it's written, those are written by their attorneys. Because they couldn't say, we don't accept you because we don't like you. But they could say, you know, your subject matter is and, and basically said, you do exactly what you say you do and you do it very well. But what you're doing doesn't it doesn't fit into psychology. It's kind of like saying, well, you're teaching Spanish really well, but that's not psychology. I cannot believe that you have <laughs> remained with this light, airy disposition being I mean, considering all this. What, I guess maybe the more productive question is this. In your mind, what do we need to do collectively to bring transpersonal psychology or just the idea of that, the elements that we've been talking about for the last hour, closer, closer to, quote unquote, real science? What's going to get, I mean, is it just, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to simplify it, but it just seems to me like, the sure. minute you start talking about to square cats, they just are like, that's great. This doesn't, this is not psychology. Well, what what you do is you take the tools of really either real psychology, real physiology, real micro um, brain scanning, and you say, well, why don't we, here are these terrific tools. Why don't we see whether people on psychedelics are different than people not? Because that's really easy. It doesn't threaten anybody. So you, for instance, it turns out, and, and you've seen this, is if you look at a picture of the brain before psychedelics, and it has some little colored lines of kind of connecting this right. to that. Right. And then you have the same mind, the same body. And after psychedelics, there's a lot more colored lines. Now, I say this lightly. We now know that taking psychedelics increases the number of colored lines in your brain. Now, does that move us ahead much in understanding consciousness? Not a bit. Does it no. move us understanding in what parts of the brain are most affected by psychedelics? Yes. Is that a value? Maybe. But what it does, and notice, it makes psychology look like a real science. Same issue. Wow. So what's happening is cross-disciplinary uh, work is really going on because the on the medical side, 
most medicines, I assure you, when you've been to study them in depth, we don't know quite how they work. Most really? huge, a huge amount of medicine is a bunch oh, of a profound statement. Yeah, go ahead. And a lot of and and we know that a lot of medications not only work, but they also have, and it's a great term, it's a totally tricky term called side effects. There are no side effects ever. There are only effects. <laughs> they're the ones you sell and they're ones you wish you didn't have. Okay. If there were, remember, if, you, if you've ever had a drink, yeah. you know, that felt pretty good. If you ever had five drinks, you still felt pretty good. Sure. If you had 10 drinks, you threw up. Right. Throwing up is not a side effect. It's an effect. <laughs> and if you could have an, a drink that had the same effects as alcohol, but you didn't throw up, it would it would be an improvement. So what's happening with psychedelics is there's a lot of wonderfully hard science all about the brain and about um, the default, different names for parts of the brain and uh, how long the effects of on the brain last. The question of how much does that improve clinical outcomes, making people better and have less suffering, not that much. So when you talk to people who are trained in psychedelic clinical studies, they turn out to be very nice people who are capable of sitting with people and radiating a calm and collective ease as people go through the most amazing changes in their consciousness they've had in their whole life.